Hey, people, I hope you all are doing great today. It's Randy Holsey with Backstage Pass Radio, and I am back for another chat with a staple artist in the music business. My guest today was the founding member of a mega popular Grammy-nominated rock band that bust onto the Hollywood scene in the mid to late 80s. The band hails from the south side of Chicago and has over 20 albums to their credit and have been featured in Rolling Stone and shows like David Letterman and Howard Stern. I will visit with the charismatic lead singer and bass player Chips Enough of the band Enough's Enough when we come back. This is Backstage Pass Radio, the podcast that's designed for the music junkie with a thirst for musical knowledge. Hi, this is Adam Gordon, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Make sure you like, subscribe, and turn alerts on for this and all upcoming podcasts. And now, here's your host of Backstage Pass Radio, Randy Halsey. Chip, what's shaking, man? How you doing? Welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Uh, thank you, Randy. Uh, doing good. I'm here in uh, Chicago, Illinois, a little town called Blue Island. Blue Island, Illinois. Sandals. Yeah, nice little town. Nice. Good people. And that's the... Uh, yep. A lot of artists out here. Okay, and that's the... You said that's the south side of Chicago, correct? Yeah, right outside of Roseland. Pretty tough neighborhood right there, right right across the street from Beverly. Okay. Beverly Hills, Illinois. Beautiful place. Nice. Well, I may, I try to make a, probably three or four trips up that way. I have a really close friend of mine who was a fighter in the UFC for a while, and he resides in Chesterton, Indiana, which is right on the lake there, uh, Lake Michigan in Indiana. So when I come up that way, I usually fly into Midway and then make my way around the lake there and, and hang out with those guys. So uh, very familiar with Chicago and, and love the city for sure. Now we knob knob from Midway all the time. All of our tours, we're flying out of Midway once in a while, O'Hare, but Midway's where to go. It's, it's a nice airport. They refurbished the whole place. Looks good. It's easy to navigate out of there. O'Hare's a little bit packed when it comes to people traveling around the country. You yeah. know, it's, it gets a little more difficult. So, yeah, Midway's where to go all the time, bro. You're doing the right thing, and, and Chester. It's not far from there. Yeah, and and I was going to say, it probably is a little bit easier to maneuver uh, with Midway than it is O'Hare because that is probably pretty busy. It's kind of like our airports here. We have a big airport in Houston and then a smaller one. The smaller one's a little further away, but it's so much easier to get in and out of that thing, right? And I I like, at my age, I like easy, man. I don't want, like, contention and I got to get where I'm going kind of thing. My patience is not what it was. You know, 20 years ago is my point. Well, I'm with Clear, so I just walk right through there. I show my mug, nice. and I get right in. I have to wait in line or anything, so that's pretty cool. That's awesome. It just makes it much easier to get around the airport. And Clear, is, by the way, is a, an app that you can use to, as opposed to, like, if you don't want to wait for TSA or anything, you know. Oh, wow. If you want the global stuff where you can go around without being smashed in and, and uh, squeezed in by all the, all the people that are traveling around the country. I mean, there's a lot of them out there right now. Everybody's, you know, to, we're f- pretty much free again. Oh, yeah. Where we can uh, travel around the country without without many mandates or restrictions. Exactly. It sounds like a great app. I, I think you probably do a little bit more traveling than, than I do. So expediting yourself through the airports is probably very near and dear to your heart, right? And I never get bummed out about people. It's always nice to be recognized. That's for sure. Yeah. 
especially with, with the, my career. Well, I, was, I do for a living. I'm a musician, so if anybody comes up and wants to talk, it's fine. It's always good to be recognized. Absolutely. And both air, both airports, I'm, it's packed with action, and I guess I got a kind of a look where it's instantly recognizable, so I guess that's okay. Yeah, well, I was going to say, if you don't want to be recognized, you pick the wrong business to be in, Chip. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's my understanding that you guys are going out on tour in April. Correct me if I'm wrong on the dates. Like, I always like to stand corrected, but is that correct? You guys have a little tour starting up here shortly? Uh, the tour doesn't really start. We have dates. We've been working on since the beginning of the year. Okay. We don't have any dates that are concrete, that are, you know, where it's uh, substantial until I'm out with the London Choir Boys. They're called the Choir Boys now from England. And uh, Steve Ramone Band, along with the Midnight Devils, who are on Pavement Records, their new records coming out soon. That tour doesn't start until May. Uh, I think it's May 3rd or May 4th. I'm out all of May. And then I jump on the Creatures Fest with the Spaceman Ace Freely, along nice. with Peter Chris. All right. And I'll right on. them a couple songs. And then uh, there'll be a couple other bands that are on that bill as well. Uh, Bruce Cullick, and I think mm-hmm. Vinnie Vincent is actually going to show up there. They must have paid him a Brinks truck full of money to get out of bed. <laughs> and all those bands are going to play this Creatures Fest with John Karabi and, yeah. and a bunch of other artists as well. Some Quiet Riots on there. My buddy Alex Grassi, I can't yeah. wait to see him. Yeah. And uh, that's going to be a three-day event at the end of May. And then June, early June is when I go out on tour, which is a, a pretty big one. It's called the Glum Slam Metal Jam. June 4th, it starts. It's uh, Enough's Enough, Pretty Boy Floyd, Midnight Devils. It's called the Glam Slam Metal Jam Tour. And uh, they'll go through all of June into July. And then we'll go out there and we'll play songs off all the records. Okay. And then hopefully, uh, I think July and August, we have some good stuff coming up. But the big, big tour for us would be in September. And that's a long run, and that's with uh, Nashville Pussy. Where will that one start? Don't know. Okay. Artists Worldwide, our agency puts it together. Gotcha. My uh, agent, Chuck Burnell, has a good sense of humor. He'll keep us out there working <laughs> as long as he can. Great agent. <laughs> you just say we'll be out there probably probably doing 30 or 40 shows. It's, it's going to be a good long awesome. run because... That tour runs right into our European tour that starts in November. Okay. So basically, they just tell you, Chip, get your glasses and your, uh, your hat, and you're, uh, you're, you're going to these places is how it works, right? Uh, that, and then along with our record company, Frontiers, yep. we have a, I have a new solo record out right now. Uh, they'll be having me doing interviews and doing press yep. every single day. So it's, not, it's a job, bro. It's, Absolutely. You, you work really hard. It's all day. Yep. You know, you, you do interviews all day. You get the sound check at five. You, right after sound check, um, it's uh, getting ready for the show. But you're on stage by eight thirty, nine o'clock, and it's a two-hour show. And then I'm out with the fans. I come out and meet at the merch booth and take pictures, shake hands, kiss babies, and it's wash, rinse, repeat yeah. every day. It's uh, very challenging, but 
That's what we do for a living. Yeah. To quote Rick Nielsen, we're not all built to do this, but the ones that are, go do it. Yep, that's right. You know, it's funny how the, you know, you mentioned that about doing the merch booth, kissing the babies and all that. It's funny how the, the music scene has changed over the last 30, 35, 40 years, right? Uh, maybe maybe not as far back as 40 years, but let's say 30 years. When I was a teenager listening to music and you'd buy that ticket to go out and see the bands play, it's like, you, man, you could never get close to the band, you know? It was uh, it was an us and them kind of thing. There were no video cameras. There were no photography. And it was just like it was a mystical thing, right? And now you guys are really getting into the mix with the fans, wanting to meet and greet the fans. And I think that's I think that that's a badass. I think that's the way it should be because I think you, you grow your fan base so much more by touching the audience, right? How do you feel about that? Yeah, we've done it always. I've never stopped doing it. Every single show I've ever played, I've come out and say hi to the fans because they're very important and they've been waiting for years to meet you. And we're not, we're a very transparent band. We've always been very accessible. Uh, I remember in the early days, it was, uh, I think 1974, I went to see Queen and they were playing at the Aragon Ballroom. The Aragon Ballroom was a place uh, where they had all kinds of like movies and theaters and plays and stuff back in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And uh, I think around the 60s, it started changing where they started having music. It was a skating rink, too, as well, for a while. And they started putting rock bands in there around like late 60s, early 70s. I remember going to see Queen. The opening act was Kansas. Nice. The middle band was Frank Marino Mahogany Rush. It was $5.50 to see Queen with Freddie Mercury. Okay? And at the end of the show, obviously, the, the band's not going to go to the merch booth and... and beat the fans because that was unheard of back then. Absolutely. But they did come out to the alleyway when they got in their cars to go back to the hotel and say hi to the fans. I remember Brian came out first out of the dressing room. He had a town car waiting for him. And he waved to everybody, and we were five, ten feet away from him. We all waved back, and then Tom Gray show, and he got in the car and split. He was a little shy. And then Freddie Mercury came out and gave everybody the peace sign, and the place went nuts. I thought, man. That's the way you got to do it. Yeah, absolutely. You got to acknowledge the fans. I mean, it's nice to do it on stage, but boy, what a wonderful sense of balance that band had. And I think I've taken that template and used it. That's a good thing. So I want to talk about, you know, your solo effort coming up in just a minute, but I wanted to go back in the time machine just a little bit in the early days of Chips Enough. When when did you get interested in music? Was it at a, a really young age or was it later in life? I mean, talk talk to the listeners a little bit about where the love for music came from and how old were you when that all came about? It came about from my mother and father. They all had a wonderful record collection. They played all the old stuff for me from Woodstock, you know, Beatles, Stevie Wonder, Black Sabbath. It was... There's a very good uh, potpourri of different kinds of materials and bands. And I think that that started everything off for me, Randy, in the early days. And then when I started to get a little older, my parents let me stay up late at night and watch Don Kirster's rock concert and the Midnight Special. Heck yeah. And that, that right there, that, that was, that bit me when he gets get a chance to see bands like Alice Cooper. Hell yeah. And, she, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Cheap Trick fan and Aerosmith. I uh, loved all the American stuff that was out there. There's a lot of bands I listened to in the early days that aren't, they weren't really big, like Crack the Sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a group, John Palermo. That was a great band. And Amata Hoopo was a, another band sure. that I loved from over across the pond. Yeah. 
Captain Beyond, great band, fantastic, with Bobby Caldwell. Okay. Uh, there was so many good groups out there that, that didn't see a ton of success, but were big influences on my life as well. But I, I, I found I, I navigated those waters. I listened to everything out there. I, mean, I played in the punk rock band in the early days called Degeneration. We toured around the country. We opened shows for Boss Gags and the Grateful Dead as a young kid. Went out on tours in a bread truck and really uh, got a chance to experience different cultures and meet all kinds of people. And that was the catalyst, I think, to me continuing to move on as an artist. Uh, Enough's Enough was something after after numerous chances of not getting a chance to reach the people I wanted to and uh, getting a chance to record and put records out. I was lucky enough where I said, you know, I'm going to do it on my own this time. I'm going to put together a band and instead of just being one of the guys I want to be uh, in the forefront where I can help out in all different ways. And uh, Enough's Enough was uh, very challenging in the beginning recording on four track little Fostex machines with a drum track and putting the songs together. And uh, that was, uh, that started everything off. Uh, you start the trial by error. Yeah. Uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. We've heard all heard it before. It's a great adage. It's yeah. an opportunity to make music. That's what I think every artist should do nowadays. Go in and start doing it on your own. Listen to, first of all, listen to all the styles of music that you, that you really enjoy. Learn everything. And then you'll find something out there that will stick to your palate. Absolutely. You'll be able to move forward. Oh, yeah. And, and, then, you, and then once you got something where you think you got some songs and you got an idea and a sketch of what you're going to do as far as playing songs and having a, your own image, then you go out and you try to find people that can help you and uh, bring that to fruition. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's always uh, it's challenging for all the musicians out there, especially in this day and age. Listen, when we were doing it, Randy, in the old days, there was no internet. There was no social media. It was really about meeting people face-to-face and Absolutely. playing songs and getting a chance to, uh, you know, move the needle a little bit. And nowadays, you can just make a record in your bedroom and put it on the internet and social media, and you can reach some fans. But I think at the end of the day, people want to see live shows. They want yeah. to hear bands play and sing. Yeah. And that's what you need to do. You need to hone your chops and get your craft together at your pad, and then you can take it from there. Absolutely. Now, when did you determine that you could or you were going to make a living as a musician? Like, did you know that early on as well? Probably in the first tours I went on, you know, I was going out, we weren't making any money at all. We just wanted to reach an audience. We'd be playing parties opening for Van Halen and backyard parties and stuff. This is, we're talking mid-70s, you know. I was living at my Aunt Evelyn's house. That's when I knew that I was probably going to do this, and it was going to be a full-time gig. Because when I first started, I was going to be a pitcher. That's what I wanted to do. I love playing sports. Yeah. And uh, when I didn't have a fast enough fastball, I threw a lot of junk, curveballs, sliders, forkballs. I was good at that. But uh, Major League Baseball was looking for guys who threw in the 90s. And I was, you know, 15 years old, 16 years old, throwing in in the mid 80s. And it wasn't quick enough, I guess. Uh, Nowadays, maybe it'd be different because you can get away with uh, having a lot of junk in baseball now. You don't have to throw at 100 miles an hour. But that's what they wanted back then. It was challenging. And I was a good hitter and a runner, too. Uh, And I could play different positions. So I wasn't a one-trick pony, but... 
I think you have to watch those Don Kirshner rock concerts, an American bandstand, and of course, a midnight special with Wolfman Jack. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was the catalyst. To start oh, yeah. Off. I go, man, I, I know I can do this gig. Heck, yeah. It's going to take some hard work. And it was challenging at yeah. first. Uh, but once you get your footing, you're, you're going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, but more than anything, for any musicians out there, if you don't dedicate yourself 24-7 to this gig, forget about it. Find something else to do, right? Yeah, there's, because there's a lot. Of, it's it, there's there's so much uh, people you know, when it comes to music and making a living doing what we do. Uh, the playing field's packed. Okay, it's, there's just a lot of people that are trying to do this. So uh, you really gotta you gotta f- fight yourself and work hard. Yeah. And like Grandpa used to say, you, uh, if you work hard, the money will follow. Yep. It's not always necessarily true, but for the most part it is. Well, and failure, even though that word's really not in my vocabulary, like I just said just now, is a good thing for everyone because uh, look at Michael Jordan, great example of a superstar. Uh, the guy's taken over 800 shots at the last shot of the game. And he made 146 of them. Yeah. And that's what everybody talks about is those 146 shots. Yep, that's right. That won the game for him. So uh, don't give up. Well, you have like to be earlier. You have to be passionate about it, right? I mean, uh, I, I think a lot of musicians these days are maybe in it for the wrong reasons. Not all of the musicians, but there, there's a there's a handful of, of, of musicians out there that they, they want the fame. Or they want this or they want that, but the, the love for the music is not quite there. I mean, you got to have a love for the music first, and then everything else grows organically around that. Uh, and, t- and tell me if I'm wrong, right? No, that's for everything in life, Randy, not just music. That's yeah. anything you got to do. Correct. And you give it 100% and do what you do. Work hard and be honest to yourself and to the people that are around you. You have an opportunity to, to reach heights that you could never have imagined. I'm from a small little town called Blue Island. Not a lot of stuff happens out of here. Although there's wonderful artists and you know, people that really work hard. A lot of blue collar cats out in this, in this part of town. Uh, but unless you're doing it every day, dedicate your life to it, that's going to be an uphill battle either way. So uh, if you give everything you got, you got a good chance. Uh, I, look at, I look back at a lot of the people that have worked and lived around here all these years, and they're still pushing their agenda every single day yeah. and I, I think that we're just one of those bands we uh, we worked hard and we we got a lucky break okay sure. that's what it was but it was because we worked hard and we had tenacity that we weren't going to stop and enough's enough's not the only band that's that's had some success out of Chicago there's quite a few real big ones out of here sure know, from Absolutely. Smashing Pumpkins and Cheap Trick and the Fallout Boys and Local H and uh Urge Overkill. Well, you got REO Speedwagon. Survivor, yeah. REO Speedwagon, yeah. Just great bands. Those bands are huge. I went to high school with Kevin Cronin, by the way. Oh, did you? Although he's 10 years older than I am. Yeah, we both went to Brother Rice High School. Oh, nice. There's a lot of bands out here that have really done really well. And uh, Jim Peter and Survivor, fabulous. Uh, and how did they do it? They wrote songs. They, they locked themselves in their pads. They got together. They worked. They rehearsed. Sticks, let's not forget about Sticks too, because I love JY, good buddy of mine. Heck yeah. Uh, those guys, they really worked hard every single day at their craft, and they were able to survive the onslaught of what this business provides. Because it's very difficult. And we did it all. Most of those bands I just mentioned did it all without social media. Yeah. They went out, learned the songs, 
hone their craft and went out and played shows. Worked their asses off. Better and better and better. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I don't want to go back down a rabbit hole, but you, you mentioned earlier, you know, you, you were a pitcher as a kid, you know, and I think I was going to say you have the frame to be a great pitcher because they look for the pitchers to be really tall, right, to have that, that lean. And I know a bunch of them. My son-in-law played professional baseball for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And a lot of those pitchers, man, they're like six four, six five, six six. You know, they're tall guys, right? And it seems like those are the ones that can really throw the heat. Those guys with the long, lean frames, you know. Yeah, well, nowadays you got guys that throw knuckleballs, and you know, you can be a, a real small cat. Exactly. You can control your pitches and get them over to play. You yep. got a good chance. That's right. And, and, and so, it's, and listen, there, and there's a, there's remember there's nine positions in baseball, that's right. so there's a lot of stuff you can do, and that's not counting being a coach or correct uh, on the or, field, a manager. So that's right. There's there's a lot of opportunities out there, but it, the playing field is just jam packed full of cats. It hasn't changed. Everybody's going there because it's big money. Absolutely. But I was playing baseball the salaries weren't like they are now it's ridiculous you get a major league deal now as a rookie and you're making 100 grand a year it's not more so uh, the salaries were a lot different than they are right now but I didn't get into it for the money just like I didn't get into music for the money I got in because I love playing music Absolutely. I love the art Right. I love being creative. Right on. And then, of course, later on down the line, you, you'd like to be able to supplement that with some kind of income so you can stay alive. Absolutely. You got to have a cheeseburger from time to time, right? <laughs> and, and or a ham sandwich. <laughs> exactly. So I was going to say, of, of all the instruments to pick from on the planet, you chose the bass guitar. What drew you to the bass guitar? I love Paul McCartney. He invented my job. And it's just uh, it's the foundation of the band. A uh, big part of the sound. A bass guitar is a, a huge overlooked instrument in a lot of ways. And then growing up, and you listen to Chris Squire and John John Paul Jones and John Deacon, yeah. and over and watch from out the hoople. And there's just you know what? There's a, a Brinks truck full of great bass players that are out there right now. Just the rock and roll fantasy camp, and I play with a couple of greats. Billy Sheehan was there, of course, and Tony Franklin, yeah. Rudy Sarzo. Yeah. I mean, there's so many good guys out there that, that have inspired me yeah. beyond belief. Uh, it's just an instrument that I thought most of the people in the, in Chicago, when I was first getting into playing, uh, were all gravitating to being the singer or the drummer or the guitar player. I uh, thought, so, well, you know, the bass may be a good opportunity, and I've always loved the sound of the instrument. Yeah. And I just took a chance, and I'm glad I did because, uh, you know, for years and years I've worked hard at it. I've been playing for you know, almost 40 years, and I play other instruments too, but bass was the catalyst for me to get into the game. And uh, I think it's a fabulous instrument, and you show me a band without a good bass player, I'll show you a band who I don't dig. Yeah, well, you got to have the rhythm section, you know? I mean, you got you to have the rhythm section. It's it's very it's integral. very important. Absolutely. It's all, the ro- all the rock records, they all start. I remember Ron Wood saying to me, well, you can't make a rock record unless you have unless you start off with the drums and bass. He's right. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And that sets the foundation for every single song and the sound of the band. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting, Chip, because, uh, you know, I, I grew up on the piano and I, I played classical piano for many, many years. And somewhere down the line, I said, you know, this is not cool anymore. Uh, you know, you can't pick up chicks by 
playing classical piano because first of all you can't take a piano to a party where all the girls are hanging out right so you got to buy you a guitar so I went out and I bought uh, the first guitar I bought was a PVT 40 bass guitar because I loved guys like Nikki Six and you know these kind of guys but then I'm also a vocalist so real quick I learned Okay, maybe maybe bass being a vocalist, maybe the bass guitar was and, and you're kind of an interesting exception to the rule because you sing and play bass, but I'm talking about more from you know, you want to go to a campfire, you want to take a guitar along and sing along with it. It's kind of tough to do that with a bass guitar unless you're in a band, unless you have a band backing you, right? Would you agree with that? That it's tough to just kind of sit around and doodle on the bass and sing songs to it? Well, it's a little easier to have an acoustic guitar with you if you're going to do something like that, right. that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, but that's not taking away anything from the bass. Heck it's no. a very important instrument. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I think that if you're going to do anything where you're playing a piano or you're playing guitar, uh, those are the two instruments that you can go to a, your, your so-called outdoor uh, forest fire party right? and yep. be able to uh, Strum along, entertain right? the people yep. that are there hanging out with you. I Absolutely. like those campfire parties, by the way. They're, They're always cool. a lot of fun. Absolutely. Uh, but the best way to navigate those is for sure with an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar with an amplifier. Mm-hmm. But if you're out in, the, out in the wilderness, there's no electricity. The acoustic's the way to go, folks. Yep, I agree. And you, you talked a little bit about uh, some of the people that, you know, inspired you in the younger days when you, you know, picked up the guitar and started getting into the whole bass guitar thing who would you say do you have any players these days like current players that are really inspiring you some people are inspired by others some could care less like i mean i I just wanted your take around that like is there anybody today that you say wow man that guy is just he's sick on that bass guitar right well, there's, there's so many fabulous players, but nowadays it's more about the whole unit, the band that I listen to. I, I love the Struts. Yeah. I think they're a fabulous band from across the pond. Uh, I gotta love Greta Van Fleet, Rival Sons, Dirty Honey, Vintage Trouble. Uh, there's quite a few about it. Wolfie Van Halen with uh, Mammoth WBH, great band. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good cats. He's a good bass player too, by the way. Yes. There's a lot of good cats that are out there, but I, I, I listen to music and bands as more than individual talents. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the old school stuff, though, uh, those guys were they left an indelible mark that it doesn't go away. Yeah. And uh, not only were their bands iconic, but their their playing was a big part of that whole sound. That's why I brought up the older guys, especially Paul McCartney who invented my job and most of these other guys too, whether they want to admit it or not. Uh, but now it's more about just listening to bands, individual musicians, and great. And there's some wonderful guys out there. But when I think back to guys who left a, their mark with me, it's those bands that I mentioned earlier, the, the Over and Watts from Out the Hoople and John Deacon from Queen and uh, you know, a lot of stuff over in England. I, I, I've always been attracted to the bands across the pond. Uh, Geezer Butler, fabulous. Sabbath, yeah. yeah. Yeah, even though going to Canada, Getty Lee, just wonderful bass player, great singer. Uh, those are the ones that uh, I have to give a nod to. Yep. Uh, but that takes nothing away from the newer bands that are out there because there's some fabulous players out there. What do you think the, what do you think the, I, I've kind of listened intently to you talk about a lot of 
bands from across the pond. What, what do you think the draw is for you there? Why, why, why do, those, do those resonate more with you than American bands? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, they did, and it's probably because of American bandstand and Midnight Special okay. and Wolfman Jack. Yeah. Uh, because they would always focus on that. Even Ed Sullivan in the early days, I was barely born then, but he played a lot of stuff from across the pond. And, uh, I, those bands took a chance. They had their own sound, their own timber. And I think they were really influenced by a lot of stuff that was over here in the United States. They just took a different approach to it. That's all. I mean, you listen to Led Zeppelin stuff, it's all blues from the old mm-hmm. days. Yeah. With, uh, you know, the Hound Dog Taylor and uh, Robert Johnson. Uh, the, the, blue, the early blue stuff over at Paul Butterfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they just uh, turned it in, into their own. Yep. And I think that's what music's all about. You show me a band without influences, I'll show you a band that hasn't written one note. And over in England, I just love their approach. You know, I listened to the early Bowie stuff. What was he listening to? Probably Beatles. Yeah. That was a big, or T-Rex. Usually. I'm sure he loved that kind of stuff too. Uh, but you know bands like Squeeze it's fabulous mm-hmm. or uh, anything that's Pink Floyd another band where do they find their influences from I don't know but boy they've really somebody ever had a good sense of humor <laughs> uh, they, they just, I agree well, with you. wonderful stuff I love the way they made their records back then it was all analog recordings everybody was recording on two inch so it wasn't your Pro Tool records where you could make everything perfect and cut it up. It was really about performances and getting uh, great songs together and recording them the best to your abilities. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing I loved about the bands in England. They knew they didn't have a second chance in the first impression. Mm-hmm. They came right out of the box with uh, great songs and killer performances, and that resonated with me. That's cool. That's a that's a cool background. Like what what drew you to that um, initially? But um, do you have a a bass guitar manufacturer that you play exclusively, or are you endorsed by anybody, or do you kind of have different manufacturers that you play? You know, you can see I'm a I'm a local musician here in the Cypress area, and I I have my favorites, right? So I didn't know if you could speak to the listeners a little bit about. You know, your go-to instrument of choice, manufacturer-wise, or um, or is it just kind of all over the place? Well, I used to be endorsed by quite a few companies, and then it's changed through the years. Uh, we do endorse uh, Mesa Boogie amplifiers that we have for years. I've been with Mesa Boogie since 1988. Uh, but for bass guitars, uh, you know, I've went with Waterstone for a while. Got a bunch of 12-string Waterstone bass guitars. Joel over at uh, Hamer Guitars. I, I was with them for years. They, Hamer built a 12-string bass for Tom Peterson, a cheap trick, and, of course, uh, Doug Pinnick at King's X. There's not a lot of guys that play a 12-string bass, but the ones that do, uh, they got some big calluses on those hands, let me tell you. Those, I was going to say. an easy instrument wow. to navigate. Uh, but I've been playing Fenders for the longest time. I got an old Fender 1963 Fender Hybrid. Uh, I've been using that bass on all the records through my whole career. So uh, I'm partial to all Fender basses, though whether uh, all the Precisions or Jazz basses are the ones that really move me. Great instruments. I play with flat wound strings now. I play with round wounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm really not endorsed by anybody, although okay. companies have asked me, and I've been, and I've showed their basses and played them through uh, social media. Uh, for the most part, I stick with that four-string Fender hybrid, which is a jazz and uh, precision bass mixed together. She has uh, 
precision neck jazz body uh, with the split pickups and then the jazz pickup in the back. All original except for the bridge where I was on tour back in 1990 with Mr. Big. We toured together around the country. We shared the same manager, the great Herbie Herbert. And Billy Sheehan, after one of the shows, uh, changed the uh, took my uh, bass and tweaked it up and put a badass bridge on it and probably place of the original bridge because it was so brittle. I thought that it was kind of interesting, and I've had that forever. I haven't changed it at all. Really? The bass shows up every single gig. It sounds great. It sounds wonderful on the records. I played on so many records. I've played on over 100 albums. And uh, it, every producer and engineer that I went, as soon as I plug in, they go, Sounds great. We're not doing anything to it. So I think I, be, I like to believe it's all in the fingers, uh, but those bass guitars are built to last for a lifetime. And uh, I'm going to, if I have to endorse anything, uh, it's going to be Fender because uh, they always do me well. It's funny that you say that it's all in the fingers. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And the reason I say that is because I, I, I've seen multiple people do this, but the one that kind of sticks out to me is, um, I think it was Zach Wild who is playing maybe some Sabbath songs on this little bitty Hello Kitty um, toy guitar, right? And it sounds just amazing. This is probably not even a fifty dollar guitar, right? It's it's a yeah, it's I a piece of too. it's I a piece of shit. Good buddy of mine, but you know he can make anything sound good. You know, just like a, a good real deal. Yeah. I remember on the tour bus with Zach. He came on our TV show. We were doing the Man Cow show. He came on there to push his record. By the way, that record went number one after he went on a show, too. Fans loved him. And we jammed on the television show. And then afterwards, we were on the bus at his gig at nighttime. And he was singing Fairies Wear Boots right into my face on the tour bus. And he sounded exactly like Gazi Osborne. <laughs> He's the best mimicker in the world. Unbelievable. Uh, but, yeah, fabulous guitar player. And, that, and most musicians you see, I just played with Joe Perry recently at the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp that they have every single year. Usually it's in Florida or Los Angeles or Las Vegas. As soon as Joe plugged in and hit an A chord, you knew immediately, it could, not even looking at him, you could have told right away, oh, that's the guy in Aerosmith. Yeah. I mean, these guys have their own timber. Absolutely. The singers and the players. Exactly. They just have a certain way they play, and you just know immediately it's them. So It's very distinctive. It fingers. It's nice to have a good amplification to push that stuff through, but. Even give him an acoustic guitar and it would sound like Joe Perry. The guy's amazing. I, I agree. And and I don't want to, uh, and this is another thing, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole on because this I want to talk about you. But t- tell me a little bit, because I've always had a, I've been intrigued by the whole idea behind the rock and roll fantasy camp. I think it's a, a, a cool ass idea. Uh, to allow, you know, your run-of-the-mill everyday musicians to go out to uh, wherever, right, California, Florida, and get to be, um, you know, write your own songs, get to, you know, perform some cover songs and be mentored by guys like yourself in the industry. Tell the listeners a little bit about the Fantasy Camp and what that whole experience is like. Yeah, the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp was is, was founded by a guy named David Fishoff. David used to manage Ringo Starr. He also had the Monkees. He managed the Monkees in the early days. Very sharp individual. He's been in the business for a long time. And he wanted to find something that where the fans, the average listeners, music lovers around the country can live their life vicariously through their favorite rock stars. So he put together this camp and he, what he does is he goes to the best players in the world, whether it's Slash 
or Adler from Guns N' Roses or Cheap Trick. Joel Hoekstra. Allison Chains. Yeah, Joel Hoekstra, you know, who's fantastic. Uh, Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, he grabs all the old bands, Aerosmith, of course, uh, and he brings them in to his beautiful facility. And then what we do as regular everyday fans is we pay a certain fee. We come in there for three days, hang out with the rock stars, learn the songs of the of the musicians that are going to be counseling the camp. And then after three days of strenuous rehearsals, you get on stage and you play with these guys. One show in front of a jam-packed audience full of few music lovers that are not only happy to see their favorite rock star up on stage, but see you up on stage playing with them sure. as well. Yeah, that's really it's cool. Sesame Street. It yeah. really works out well. He's been doing it for years and years. I'm a counselor there. I just did it. You know, the one I just did was great because uh, Joe Perry just played on the Ann Margaret record on Cleopatra Records. And then they asked me to sing and play with Ann as well. Wow. So, you know, the, this business is predicated on friendships and relationships. It's nice to get in there and rub elbows with your favorite guys. Uh, coincidentally, I share the same birthday with Joe Perry, September 10th, two Virgos. Nice. And I love the fact that we had enough, after we played together, we did the same old song and dance with my class, and they were great. After three days of me beating those guys up, it really did, came up with a great performance. Wow. Uh, to get a chance to do a record with them. I mean, I never would have had this opportunity if I didn't do the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Remember, I'm a fan before anything else, just like everybody, just like all you people out there. I love those musicians. I grew up with their music. It's part of my vocabulary. Interesting that you uh, bring up Ann Margaret's name. I did an interview not too long back with a guy named Adam Hamilton uh, out of L.A. Good producer. Yeah. and He's a good uh, producer. And Hammy played, you know, with Joey C. Jones and the Glory Hounds and also played with C.C. With DeVille when C.C. left. Poison. Adam's a wonderful guy. He was a wonderful guest on my show. But when you when you mentioned that, I'm like, oh, probably knows Adam Hamilton then, right? Oh yeah, I love him. I remember we used to play with uh, LA, LA Guns. Guns. Yep, that's right. Yep, yeah, for sure. So he's, he's really he's really uh, found his niche. He's a wonderful producer, a multi instrumentalist. Uh, it does a lot of good things for a lot of nice people. Yeah. Um, he's, he's a real citizen. Yeah. And he spoke really highly of Ann because I know that she's been in his studio, uh, doing some recording as of late. So I think Adam had a, a good hand in, in producing some stuff that she has coming up too. So I look forward to hearing that. Now, if you take the listeners back a little bit, uh, I think 1984, Enough's Enough formed. Do I have my date or my year correct there? 84 sound right to you? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Tell the listeners a little bit about where the name came from. Can you talk about the name of the band and, and who thought that up and where it was derived sure. from? I know it was, uh, we were playing in the north side of Chicago, uh, Donnie V and myself, the original singer, Enough's Enough. And we were uh, just navigating the waters. We're just starting out. And we all put together names into a bucket. And whoever picked out the straw would do it with the right name. That, that was the name that we were going to go with. So uh, we all had different names that we put into this, uh, this little contest that we were putting together as a gang just trying to find a, a name for a band. And we pulled up Enough Snuff, and it was spelled Enough is Enough, E-N-O-U-G-H, and then I-S, and then E-N-O-U-G-H-S. So we said, Enough is Enough, and we thought, ah, you know what? That's an okay name. But then it started sticking with us, and, and 
uh, Donnie says to me, he goes, uh, you're going to be chips enough, bro. And I go, yeah. And he goes, and he goes I'm going to be Donnie V. And on the way home from the rehearsal, and we said, well, that's it. Let's just do that. And then we left that band. We just took the name with us. Really? That's the truth. Interesting. Uh, and nothing else. And then, we, of course, when we refined the band the sound, yep. okay. uh, we changed the name to the correct song that we are that we have right now. Yep. Because we, uh, when we did, we had to come up with a name. We changed the last of it to Z-N-U-F-F. So it was enough is enough. Yeah. And then we ended up switching it over. And it seemed to fit. And then the record company came to us and said, you know, we want to change the name of the band. The guy named was Derek Shulman. He was uh, a singer from a band called Gentle Giant. And he was now running the Atco Atlantic Records. He came from Polygram. He, he was one of the guys that discovered Bon Jovi and signed him along with Cinderella. He said, well, I want to change the name of the band to, to Flies on Fire or Schoolyard or Trick or Treat. And we were, I, I wasn't into it at all. The guys in the band were just happy we had a, a legitimate record company that was interested in the group. And then the, the dinner that we had together in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, ended with, well, we're not going to be enough stuff anymore. We're going to change the name. It's probably going to be Trick or Treat. I went back home. I was pretty bummed out. I told the record company, I said, listen, I'll change my name. I just want to keep the name. He goes, Chip, how many bands, how many people you think know about enough stuff? I said, I know, 10, 20,000 people have heard of us now. He says, when I'm through with you, millions are going to know who you are. So I went home that night going, well, you know, it was a nice little run here, but we got a great opportunity. We're going to be with a major label, and the name's going to change, and we'll just leave it as it is, and uh, enough stuff, it will be, it will just be just that. And about 8.30 in the morning, I got a telephone call. I was living in Beverly Hills, Illinois, where we recorded all our demo tapes. And I picked up the phone, and it was Derek Showman, the English guy. And he goes, you win! And he hung up the phone. No kidding. And I guess I took that as, I guess we're staying enough enough. Nice. Was, it got was lucky. So those 10 or 20,000 fans that got a chance to see us in Chicago opening shows for a BTO or Cheap Trick yeah. uh, were in for a rude awakening because we came out of the box with that nice. single new thing and nothing was the same ever since. So he acquiesced to your demands and the, the rest is history there, it sounds like. I right? certainly didn't throw my weight around, Randy. When a record company's talking to you, you listen. And, yeah, and, for sure. And debate was, back in the old days, you can debate. It was okay. You weren't vilified for that. So uh, I want to be a girl. Well, you know, I'm a girl, and that's it. You know, no, no question. Right on. So when we came with the name and us and up, uh, record company, they knew that we uh, had a passion for that, and that we were pushing that narrative for you know a couple of years before they even met us. Yep. I think he just went home and he realized, you know, maybe this band, after hanging out with them and their personalities and and their disposition, maybe enough is enough. Maybe we would keep that name. And uh, he was happy because we came out of the box. Broke the Billboard Top 200. Uh, our buddy Rick Krim over at MTV, along with Les Carlin, were kind enough to play our video for New Thing. It was a smash hit there, and we went right on tour with Mr. Big. And then we went out with Badlands and started touring around the country, and we're moving units every single week, and that's how you sold records. If you got a chance to play an MTV back then, you were able to move some units, and then oh, yeah. the radio followed. And it really helped us out. It was a, it was a wonderful opportunity for all of us. So we'll spread our wings and reach a lot of people. Yeah. And those early tours were out of control. We were touring in a van in the early days. Then we got a tour bus, and then we found out about, we found drugs. Then, yeah. So we that was a tough obstacle to be able to to navigate what was happening at that time on a tour bus that cost a thousand bucks a day. We didn't know about the word recoupable back then. We just with the record company was selling records. They said we're going to put you out 
kind of bus so you're more comfortable and let it elevate and raise your perception at every venue we're playing. But at the end of that tour, after selling over a half million records and all the great reviews and all the, you know, the, the, the couple of times on Letterman and doing the Howard Stern show and all those big, big performances, we still found ourselves three quarters of, of a million dollars in debt. And we, no one knew about that. One little word in the contract is recoupable. So anything the record company puts into the band for promotion, you got to pay it back first before you see any money as well. Yeah. We actually didn't see much money on, except for the beginning of the deal when we signed with them. And then the publishing deal that we caught with co-publishing deal with Okta, uh, we were able to uh, have, make a little bit of chips to, to hold us over. But it was basically enough enough. The four band, band members, our manager, Bob Brigham, our other manager, Doc McGee at the time, he didn't come out with us because he was managing Bon Jovi and Motley Crue, Scorpions right? and Motley Crue, yeah. so he kept getting the tour bus with us, of course. Then we had three or four crew guys, so it was nine of us on one bus, and that's how we did the first you know, four or five years of touring. Uh, all of us together know everybody has their own bus, you're separated. Yeah. So the, that, was, uh, that was pretty challenging as well, but man, some great stories that came out of that. When I come out with my book, I think people will be pleasantly surprised when they hear some of the stuff that we went through as a, uh, as a band, as a team, I can all imagine. those years, I can on imagine. one tour bus, yeah. nine guys piled in there. Wow. And that's not counting the fans that we brought on every single night as well. Right. It was a real rock and roll party. It was like, a, it was, we dubbed the bus uh, Yellow Submarine. There was a reason why. I, uh, I was going to say Doc probably had his hands full managing Motley Crue, right? I mean, those guys were kind of out of control back in those days, you know, on a lot of touring with Ozzy and, you know, putting those guys together in the in the same room. I'm sure. I'm sure he had his hands uh, full. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. Well, he had Bon Jovi too, and John wanted his undivided attention. So between just those two, it was tough. Of course, he had Scorpions. He had Skid Row. Enough's enough. He had a lot of bands. Him and his brother Scott McGee were managing machines. They had they had a lot of stuff that was going on and. They just didn't have time for anything that wasn't hitting home runs. Yeah. When did you guys abbreviate the band name? When did you take it from the true spelling of enough is enough to the to the Zenough part? Was that early on in the you know the infancy stages of the band, or did it come later, or when did that happen? It came on later on. It came on later on around uh, 1988, I think, is when we actually started using the apostrophe. Okay. And we don't even use it now. It's just enough, enough's enough, E-N-U-F-F, Z-N-U-F-F. Okay. People know who it is. We own the copyright. We own the name. And we went through a bankruptcy to get out of our deal with Adco Records and signed with Clive Davis and Arista. It cost us $70,000 back then just to get the name rights. So that, that was very important. But for anybody that's out there, you got to brand yourself. Yep. And uh, you got to go out there and you got to own the name and you got to own the copyright, the trademark. We didn't know any about that, anything like that in the early days at all. But we were able to find a way. We had good management too around us. Yeah, after Doc McGee said he didn't have enough time to manage enough snuff anymore because he had, devoted, he had to devote most of his attention to the other bands he had, uh, he chose, I'm going to turn you on to who I think is the greatest manager in the music business. His name is Herbie Herbert. He's very interested in taking over. And we didn't know a lot about her, but we knew about Journey. And we knew he had bands like Mr. Big and Roxette and Europe, Steve Miller. Uh, but we didn't know he was going to be interested in doing anything with us, especially after he met us. But after the first show, it was a debacle. He said, where's the fucking band that I was signed? Where's the band, this cassette tape that I have in my hand right now? We said, uh, Kirby, 
It was a rough gig for us. We didn't have the stage room, no sound check. Please come out to the next gig, and we, I promise you, you'll see that band. And he took a ride with us. We told stories all night, going from, I think it was Minnesota to Milwaukee. The next day, he came out and seen us, and it was packed. Wow. Uh, just so much action, so much trim at the shows, and people were catching the MTV videos at the last minute, and they were yeah. loving it. And the band showed up on fire. We very flamboyant, colorful band, very glitter rock, and there was no tapes, no sequences, no guys backstage, just us singing, playing mm-hmm. these songs. And after that performance, Herbie came on the bus. He goes, now that's the band I signed. <laughs> and then we knew we had a chance right there having him on our corner to help move us through and push the needle. And we got some good tours after that. Herbie did a lot of great things for Enough's Enough. Uh, and we were probably the most difficult band that he ever had to manage. But he told me out of all the bands he's ever managed, we were his favorite. And I'll never forget that. Yeah. And it meant a lot to me. He loved the songs. And we did a lot of stuff together. I produced a couple of Cyclops blues band records which is on guitar recordings. And that was members of the Tubes, Sly and the Family Stone, Journey, Steve Miller Band. And that's what really bonded. Herbie and I really bonded during those records right there. Cyclops Blues Band, get a chance to hear those records. They're fantastic. Yeah. Herbie Herbert, who went by the nickname Cy, he was the guy that sang on all this stuff. He sounds just like Steve Miller. Really? Great songs, all blues. I'll have to check that out. I haven't heard of them, but of course, I had Fee Wable for, from the Tubes on my show not too long ago, and he's a really cool guy to talk to. A big, yeah, and Prairie uh, Prince played on our record. Yeah, yeah. Prairie yeah. wonderful. He's a great artist. Right. Yeah, for wonderful, sure. Wonderful artist and a solid drummer. And I, we'd opened a bunch of shows in the, in the early days when Herbie was managed us for uh, the Tubes. So I played with Fee Wable quite a few times. And those, I don't know how we walked around those eight inch high heel boots, but what a real rock star. And those songs are the stuff that he wrote with Steve Luke that they're from Toto. Yeah, Incredible. man. Hell yeah. Yeah, what a real rock star. Yeah. That's a great band. Way yeah. ahead of their time. Oh yeah. And, and you know, it was, it was kind of funny because we talked about his solo record that came out not too long ago. And I, I forget how old he, he mentioned in the show, how old he was. He's in his seventies, right? And the guy still has a fucking great voice and still has the range that he's always had, which is crazy because a lot of times vocalists, we lose that over time. We lose that, that high end over time and, and we have to start the tuning down and do all these tricks to get the vocals or rekey the song or whatever it may be. But, but Fee still sounds great after all these years. I was really impressed with that solo record. Yeah, it'd be nice for Fee Waybill to get back out there and do a tour supporting that solo record, put a band together. But it's different time, different day and age right now. When you stay away for too long, it's hard to get back into the game. I agree. They've taken a lot of breaks. He's got a wonderful reputation. There's not about that, but he's been out of the game for a while. And to get back in it with all the agencies and everybody vying for a spot to go out there and work and do shows, it's, it's pretty difficult out there. But, man, it would be nice to see Fee yeah. go back out and, and support that solo record, get some good guy, maybe go out and call Perry, Perry Prince yep. and some of his constituents and get those guys to go out and do a a month run. That would be cool. Uh, but it, it's expensive nowadays. Look at the buses are 1200 bucks a day. Yeah. Fuel seven bucks a gallon, diesel, maybe more. Uh, hotel rooms cost money to get the equipment and get a crew together. It, it's very, very challenging to go out. I don't care who the artist is unless yeah. you're massive. Yeah. It's hard to go out there and tour, support your releases. Yeah. I mean, if you're on the ground driving around in a van or a bus or something of the sorts, yeah, the gas prices are, are stupid right now and it's like you you're just eating in the profit of the band you know it's it's a kind of 
I mean, it's a necessary evil, but it's it's almost can be looked at as poor business too. Like there's just so much cost going out and not as much possibly coming in. It's, there's a lot of thought process that has to go into it, you know. Yeah, you go in the hole there. You, if you have a backer that can help you, that certainly makes things a little easier and, and softens the blow. But yep. for the most part, it's really difficult for any of those bands to go out there and tour without having some kind of tour support. <laughs> you just got to get that right now. It's just too... There's too many bands out there. We're at a time right now where there's too much product, not enough demand. Yep. That's it. Yep. So it's sad to see these older artists. That, and Fee made some money in the early days with those, you know, uh, white punks on dope and mm-hmm. one in a million girls. Oh, yeah. Talk to you there's later. Yeah. songs that are right there he's, oh, yeah. that he lent his fabulous pipes to. Yep. Uh, but for any of the artists that are out there, I don't care who you are, especially the newer ones out there, it's a van. You get in a van, you're going to go out there and tour, and you're going to play like that. And get used to it. Hopefully, you guys can, you know, somebody keeps it together and keeps it straight and isn't drinking. That's right. Have that one guy that's behind the wheel all the time so everybody's safe. Yep. And uh, you got a chance to, to make some inroads. Exactly. Uh, but I just did a tour bus on the last tour. Enough's enough faster pussy can't run. Live and quarantine tour, which happened in uh, June and July and August of last year. Uh, we had a tour bus in front of ours, loan us the bus. And uh, it broke down in the middle of the tour. We ended up getting a van and finished up the tour. So. Uh, they're not as reliable as everybody thinks as well. Yeah. But I'll tell you, boy, a lot of, we had the old Journey tour bus, 1989, uh, Eagle, or maybe it was a Prevo, but man, it was fine. I found all really? the old picks in there. Dave Lee Roth used the bus. I found some Steve Vai picks in there. A lot of That's different cool. bands. Ario Speedwagon. It was one of those old buses the guy had in his, uh, in his house, and he goes, uh, I'm not using it. You guys go take it out on a tour. And it still costs us about 800 bucks a day just to fuel, just to get around. Jeez. Wow. So I thought, oh, you know, we'll take the bus out and really elevate our perception. The fans will love it. They'll want to come on there and hang out. Yeah. And it wasn't like that at all. Within a month, the bus was broke down. It costs us a brink's truck full of money. And uh, I recommend any of the new bands out there, unless you got tour support and got somebody with that's uh, got some deep pockets, you just better get ready to go out and tour. Either flying in, doing the weekend warrior, or get in the van. And, and taking that out yeah. there. That's, that's the only way to really do it. I gotta, if I was managing a band, that's what I would tell them to do. Yeah. You want to go tour, guys? Yeah, I'll put you out five, six days a week. You're in a van. And that's it. Yeah. And you get one hotel or two hotel rooms. Everybody piles in there like a slumber party. <laughs> and it's wash, rinse, repeat. Absolutely. You got to do more with less, I guess is what they say. You know, you got to do more things with less money. And uh, anyway, sometime around 89, you guys were signed. You mentioned you were signed to Atco Atlantic. And I'm sure that changed things for you guys at that time. Talk to the listeners a little bit about how you go from unsigned band status to signing with a, a major label. What, what changes in the band? Well, we were in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin at Royal Recorders at the old Americana Hotel. And they were doing a lot, a lot of Monsters of Rock was coming through at the time. So all the bands that played, you see Van Halen, the Dawkins, and the Leonard Skinner. It was really a, a wonderful time for music. And radio was really embracing it, too, as well. And uh, Doc McGee came in there when Skid Row was doing their first record. Doc was the one catalyst on everything. He's, my manager, Bob Brigham, gave him a couple of cassette tapes. And Doc listened to him, and he thought it was good. He came to me and says, hey, Chip, I got three cassette tapes in my car. Two of them are your band. I said, ah, oh, Doc, that's great, thanks. So I got a friend of mine who's got his own imprint over at Polygram. They're giving him his, uh, uh, his own label at ADCO, which is a subsidiary of Atlantic. I think he'd be interested in your band. So once they came down and seen the group and, and they were impressed with our debacle of uh, 
rehearsal spot. Okay, we were just girls were in there partying. It was tons of alcohol, loud mouth soup. We're all smoking pot, not taking it serious at all. Musically, we were, but not, you know, it was a big party for us. But the label scene was smart enough and intuitive enough to know that these guys have something here. I want to, I want to look into it a little deeper. So when we signed our deal, you know, we were all living in apartments. We had no money at all. We we're barely li- surviving. I think three hundred bucks a month to live in an apartment, one bedroom apartment. That's where we did all our demos and recordings. Uh, so the record company, uh, their deal was uh, a quarter million dollars. And we had nothing at all. We were working construction jobs every single day and during the afternoon to, and just to get through and navigate. And uh, so we had, we finally got some money. That changed a little bit because we'd go pay our rent and we can get some, we can buy some equipment. And then uh, we signed a publishing deal as well, a, a co-publishing deal with, Atco Records, which was called Octa Music. And uh, that brought us in some pretty good shippy poos too. So we were able right away to not only get some new equipment, but uh, recording equipment and musical equipment. Uh, we got some threads too, so we can survive and, and look the part. That was real important because we were stealing stuff out of our mom's and sister's bedroom closets just to have the look like that rock glam kind yeah, of look you know yeah. we really weren't a glam band we were more of a pop rock band and we still are yeah. uh, but we were colorful and flamboyant and because MTV embraced the first video the first single new thing and we had we had Paul Starr doing our makeup and lipstick and fixing us up mm-hmm. you know that kind of put us in a hole we didn't think about that then. we just liked looking colorful yeah. uh, we had no idea that once people seen you like that well that's the way they're going to expect to see you all the time absolutely it, well we were getting played on MTV, uh, the bands that were on there were were flamboyant as well. Uh, Motley Crue, uh, obviously Pantera came out there and they were total glam before they yeah, changed their Absolutely they smart. Yeah, Poison. Uh, Poison. Yeah. And Winger. Yeah. You know, the really sure. good bands. Cinderella. They were all, they were all, yeah, they were all flamboyant. And we, without us being colorful and flamboyant, we probably wouldn't have got played on MTV. They were looking for something that was, that would push the needle a little bit. And we just came out a, lot, a little bit late of a time. We would have got signed around 86, 87. I think the, the trajectory of an upset would have been much bigger. Uh, but we were grateful to get recognized whatsoever because there was so many bands that were out there. Yeah. Uh, but we, we weren't uh, paying attention to those bands I just mentioned to you, but no, they're great bands. We were still living in the past with the music we listened to, as I mentioned earlier to you. Yeah. Uh, the Beatles and Queen and Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Squeeze. That, that was our wheelhouse, to be yeah. honest, with Bowie and Mata Hoople. Mm-hmm. So when we came out of the box, you know, uh, everybody goes, well, these guys are a glam rock band, but we, only because of our look, yeah. because of MTV. Uh, and, and we knew that, that that's what we needed to put us over. And if we would have came out in jeans and T-shirts, uh, maybe we wouldn't have, you wouldn't be talking to me right now, or maybe we'd be like a YouTube. We don't band, know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's the chance you take when you're in the music business. You just go put your best foot forward. And I guess we were more comfortable dressing like, like trim as yeah, opposed to sure. as opposed to the guys. It lasted pretty long for me because look, I'm still here talking to you. So <laughs> that's right. I, I guess I did so you know, with the good Lord's blessing. I've done some pretty good things right there. Yeah, uh, but I've always loved bands that weren't afraid to push the envelope. Well, you talked about it earlier. You know, it's you got to build the brand, right? And the brand for Enough's Enough is the look that you have. That's part of it. The name is part of it. You're part of it. The look is part of it. I mean, this all is the thing that makes you guys who you are, right? So well, I that's knew a, in the early days that if, 
we, we came out with MTV with that colorful video. That's one thing where people see us and they can turn on every day. We're in the top 10 for, you know, the whole year, maybe longer mm-hmm. with that, with New Thing and with Fly and Michelle. Both of them were very successful for us. But we knew when you turn a radio on, you put a record on a turntable, you put a CD in or a cassette tape and listen to music. You don't see makeup and lipstick and smoke machines and people shaking their asses. You hear right. the music. That's right. And I think that's what's kept us alive all these years because the songs have been strong. And that's first and foremost. Yep. They have to hold up for sure. Now, when you guys signed with Atco Atlantic, were you based in Hollywood at that time or in Southern California? Or, or were you still in Illinois at that time? No, we're a Chicago band. We've never left Chicago. We okay. only went to California because we had to meet our constituents. The label wanted to meet I us. I follow you. So Derek Showman. From Echo flew us out to Los Angeles, and we we're going to do some recordings out there as well. We we're doing most of our stuff here I got in the Midwest at Royal Recorder Studio in Lake Geneva and over at Chicago Recording Company. So we went to Los Angeles. We had to meet the people that ran the label out there and our, our A&R chick and the people that were uh, helping us with our career and moving us forward. So that's why we went to Los Angeles. Karen Dumont, by the way, was the A&R girl over okay. there. God, I miss her. I haven't seen her in years. She was so fantastic. She used to live with Nikki Six. Really? She went through Nikki's closet and got me all the clothes that I needed for that first album cover. <laughs> Took them from, from Nikki, huh? <laughs> Nikki and Nikki Six and I you know, sort of kind of built the same. We were both six two tall guys. Thin. Uh, and I, I even put on the record, I said, uh, Thanks to Nikki Six for unwittingly supplying the threads. <laughs> and unknowingly. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Unwittingly, I think I put it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, yeah. It was, uh, those were good. We went to California because the label wanted us to see what was happening out okay. there. And at that oh. time, back in, in 88, 89, it was unparalleled. You had the Whiskey, the Rainbow, the Roxy, the Viper Room. All that stuff was happening. Troubadour. Yeah. The uh, Palladium. Yeah, it was the rock was it was predominantly the the big music of, the, of that era. The streets were packed full of a uh, ton of punters, you know, yeah. all kinds of girls and guys that just lived and breathed hard rock and heavy metal. It was a great time to, sure. to be around there and to be recognized. I got to be honest with you, I played some fabulous shows out there. All our gigs were sold out in a couple hours. We were playing not huge places, but thousand, two thousand seat venues. But all the rock stars would come out and see us movie stars, actresses. It was a really wonderful time for all of us. Uh, and we took in that party like you wouldn't believe too. We weren't very disciplined unless we got in the studio and started recording. Then it was hundred percent yeah. serious. Uh, outside of that though, we, we had a propensity to get in trouble at any single moment. Yeah. Well, you know, before we smashed the record button on this uh, interview, we talked about a little bit about the late, great Joey C. Jones. And when I talked to to Joe on my interview, I asked him about the Sunset Strip back in the day, and he said, Randy, man, you couldn't tell the performers from the street people. Like, they all looked the same. Everybody was all, I mean, it was just that time where everybody had the big hair and were made up, going out, and it was just a scene, man. You know, like, it was a vibe, and you couldn't hardly tell the actual musicians from just the people that were coming to see the musicians, right? No, you couldn't, because uh, everybody was living their life vicariously through each other. Absolutely. Be strange to walk down Sunset Strip and see the cats of the Red Hot Chili Peppers or Guns of Roses or even Cheap Trick for that matter when they were making records out there. We hung with all of them. Yeah. We lived at the Oakwoods on Barham. <clears throat> all the musicians would stay there. And our condo where we lived at, at the Oakwoods would be Metal Church, Badlands, Stevie Wonder, 
Keith Sweat, Jason Bottom. There's a, a potpourri of different musicians. Everyone out there, the, the, the common denominator was let's make a great record. It was great. It was a wonderful time out there. I go to the studios and see all the different bands play. I sit in there, Jellyfish, Fantastic, Alice in Chains. The whole scene was great for years and years. It didn't really start changing until the mid-90s where there was a real change of the guard. You know, we had the whole grunge scene happening with Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Nirvana, Mud Honey, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was great stuff, though. I love those fucking bands. They came out of the box with, with a fabulous sense of style. Uh, but a lot of the rock bands like us, they got pushed to the wayside. And it was the, the ones that were uh, tenacious enough to, to move forward and hang in there were, were the ones that survived. And the ones that said, that's it, I'm going to go back and get a day job. Well, that's what they wanted to do. And maybe perhaps that was the, what was meant to be. Yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you, there was nothing like L.A. in those early days. And it lasted for quite a long time. I could imagine what it was in the 70s when I was, a, I was out there in the 70s, but I didn't spend a lot of time there. I lived there when I was in my punk band degeneration but i missed a lot of that stuff uh when i remember when van halen came out that was a that was a pretty big scene that certainly changed the whole complexity of the music business then too look the guitars and radio was important with that you know they, yes. they embraced that kind of music but for the most part uh, i didn't get a chance to see a lot of that stuff until i went out there in the late 80s with enough enough okay and i got a chance to suck in some of that wonderful rock and roll attitude that Tinseltown provided oh, yeah. for all those years. Man, I could, I, I could my imagine. book has got so many great stories in there with all the bands and things that we've done together. It's incredible. I only wish that the fans could see that right now. It'd be a real kicking ass for rock and roll because Man. now uh, we do, there's no MTV. You don't hear that push. Radio's weird. They're just playing the old stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the uh, Sirius XM and, and for Dash Radio which is a program I'm on six days a week on the Monsters of Rock. You, know, you just don't get what you got back in those old days. Yeah. We're living our lives. Uh, we're living in the past when it comes to a lot of that music, but we still mix it up. Yeah, I and I th- I'm hoping that the newer bands out there, like the Greta Van Fleet, the Vintage Trouble, the Rival Sons, the Dirty Honeys, the Struts, the, I hope they carry that flag. Yeah. Well, we, we need it for sure because it's a different time and a different music business for sure. You know, back, I guess you guys released 20 plus records over the, over the years of being together. And that, that's certainly a lot of music. Did you serve as the primary songwriter of the band? Talk to me a little bit about the music that was written by Enough's Enough. Was it a collaborative effort? Was it you? Who was the driving force behind behind Uh, the the writing? uh, It was a driving force between Donnie V, my brother, singer, and myself. Okay. We came up and and wrote and produced all those songs. If you look at all the Enough's Enough albums, too, we're the producers and the writers of those songs because there was nobody around. We didn't need anybody to help us. We knew how to make a record. Now, Donnie's been gone since 2013. I'm the primary songwriter in the band, although Tony Fennell, my guitar player, fabulous writer, used to be in the band called Ultravox. Played with Edwin, uh, Edwin Starr, too, for years, playing bass with him. He's a fabulous songwriter. Uh, Tori Stoff, Reagan, New Black Seven, uh, Black Mollies he had. He's also got another project right now. He's just put a new record out. He's a fabulous songwriter as well. Great singer. Uh, love, I want to say, my, not my love bone. Um, Daniel Benjamin Hill, another guy. Okay. Fantastic, too. I forgot Tori's new rock. He's got a brand new record out right now. A solo record. <laughs> he got a brain cramp. Uh, but he's a fabulous singer-songwriter. And uh, my, my drummer, same thing. 
rec- great record producer, uh, orchestrator, plays different instruments. These guys are all great writers. Absolutely. They certainly don't need me, but I've been writing most of the material since uh, 2013 and putting these records out uh, of enough stuff as you hear yeah. in this day and okay. age. Awesome. And, uh, it's always nice to have a partner, and I go and I, I get ideas from these cats all the time because, like I said, they're great songwriters. Uh, but for the most part, I got a bring truck full of songs. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of fodder out there to write about, and tons of subject matter. And I've been lucky enough to capture some of this stuff and put it to tape. Yeah, I wanted to talk about your solo stuff, but I wanted to jump back just for a quick second because, you know, I did some homework and whatnot before the, the interview, but I didn't know that you were in the process of writing a book. Is there something that we can talk about about the book, anything you want to plug about the book, when to look for it, or do you want to just skip that subject and move on? No, uh, the book will come out when it's ready. It, listen, it, it, you don't write a book in one year. No. Nope. been working on this for five years. Okay. It's not enough. It, you find yourself, a, you come up with some great ideas, and, you, and I, I record everything, by the way, so I don't forget them. And then you, lo- you wait until you get it all together where you have a chronological order of everything that's happened in through your career up to a certain point, and then you can release that. So. I'm hoping in the next year or two I can have the book because okay. I think it's a movie. I really do. Sure, okay. Uh, there's so many ups and downs and uh, really, really exposing all the war scars and tattoos of what enough stuff was and what this business has done to us and, and for us. Uh, and I hope to get the book out when it's ready to be released. In the meantime, I focus on making records. Yep. And that's what I've been doing. And uh, we put out six records in the last six months. The box set, Rarities, which is on Cleopatra, mm-hmm. four album box set. Uh, the Beatle record that we just put out, yep. Hard Rock Night, which is on uh, Frontiers. My solo record as well. Solo record just came out last week, folks. It's my love letter to the new generation. It's called Perfectly, Perfectly Imperfect. Perfect, yeah. features Joel Holtstra from White Snake Trans-Siberian Orchestra, along with Dax Neils from, from Cheap Trick and Daniel Benjamin Hill playing with me on it. Uh, and then the brand new Enough Stuff album, which I'm just turning into Frontiers next week. Don't want to give you the title on it because I don't want anybody to pillage it. Damn. Fabulous record. Right on. Uh, and that'll, that will be our 25th or 26th release. You can't call us lazy. No. Dad, I don't want to sound unmodest. But he's certainly put a lot of records on. That's not even counting the other guys. Uh, Daniel Benjamin Hill's working on three records right now. He's got a country record, a rock record, a pop record coming out. Jesus. Tony, he's doing stuff with One uh, in Rome. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, uh, Tori Stoffregan's got, uh, he's got the Black Molly records. He's got a couple of new Black 7 records. And uh, Sneaky Doodle is a new band he's putting out right now, which is fantastic. So, everybody's staying busy making albums, and that's, that's the awesome. common denominator right now. Okay. Uh, who cares who drives this bus? Let's get to the picnic. Exactly. You got that right. Do you find it difficult, like as you as you go through your days and you're thinking of material for this book? Do you have a hard time recalling things like, man, what did I do? Like, I, there's something like on the tip of my tongue that I did 22 years ago, and I can't I can't think of all the details. Do you struggle with some of that, or is the memory still really vivid, like with all of the things that you're writing about? I'm pretty blessed. Okay, good Lord works in mysterious ways. I remember it. Got crazy, just, just great stories. And if anything that I have 
trouble recalling. I just go to my old manager, Bob Brigham. Okay. And he's got tons of stuff. And then I, when, when Herbie was alive, he gave me a lot of stuff to talk about, bring up a lot of memories about the labels and our business relationships. And I wrote it all down, put it all on a diary. So oh, I'm in pretty good shape with that. My, I still have a pretty good memory. I got good. Like I remember all the I have to remember all the lyrics to the songs. I don't have a teleprompter like a lot of the bands do, which I wish I did have. That makes things a lot easier. Uh, but uh, brain power, you know, memory. Yeah, yeah. You just work every day and you can go out there and sing and play the songs and you try to keep yourself sharp that way. Yeah. That's what I've done. Yeah. And the memory's been pretty good so far, knock on wood. Yeah. Well, I, I, I found that that's a, you know, the whole teleprompter thing is, is a blessing and a curse all at the same time because it's you, you, it becomes an umbilical cord. If you get used to it, it's hard to get off the tit, so to speak, if you know what I'm saying, right? So you've probably done it the right way by just using the brain power, like you said, to remember the songs. I was at an Aerosmith concert years ago, and I noticed Steven Tyler was using one, and it's like, that was interesting to me because this guy's been singing these songs that he's written for 40 plus years now. How do you forget those? But, you know, there's not as much elasticity in the brain as we get older. And, you know, who, who knows what the reasons are. But uh, in, in granted, in, in Stephen's defense, he wasn't standing there reading off the teleprompter, right? It just kind of keeps him on track and like, OK, that's the third verse, not the second verse kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, I've never had anything against those guys. I give them credit because, you know, those set lists are 20-plus songs. A lot of bands do it. He's still singing. He's still playing. He yeah. still wrote those songs. Uh, if it, Anything to help it make it a little easier to navigate, it's, I, I give him credit to be able Absolutely. to take it through those shows. It's a difficult task. Remember, a lot of responsibility, not only to stay in shape and keep our pipes in, in the tip-top condition, but... But the fans, they want to hear those. This first time they ever fell in love, first time they ever had sex, first time they ever partied, you know, they heard these songs. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to shift gears again. I wanted to talk a little bit about the solo stuff. You released an album back in, I think it was 15, 2015 called Strange Time. But then we fast forward, let me do the math, seven years. And it's now 2022. You just released a brand new solo effort, uh, and you spoke of it earlier, Perfectly Imperfect. Tell the listeners about the record. That's, just, that's another 10-song excursion in the eyes behind my purple rose-colored glasses. I didn't want to put a solo record out. Enough snuff records are like a solo record to me. You know? I get the chance to, to say what I need to say with my gang, which yeah. I love that. But the record company insisted on the record deal that we signed with Frontiers to have three new records in six months. The first one was the Beatle record, Hard Rock Night. The second one is Perfectly Imperfect, which was released last week. And then a new Enough Snuff album, which comes down the pipeline in a few months. And as I said earlier, it's my love letter to the new generation. All the songs are perfect of what's happening right now in the world. You know, the songs are like embryos. It's like uh, the beginning of a relationship. And the approach I take on these songs is let's just get the idea down there and see where it goes from there. I surround myself with some good people. I got a great producer. His name's Rob Posey. He does a lot of punk rock records, but he's got a good sense of balance. And then I go on every single one of my records in the last 15 years, I go to a guy named Chris Diamonds over at a studio here in Chicago called Stonecutter Studios. Chris Simon's responsible for doing Kiss Revenge, 
to the Alice Cooper stuff. He worked with Ozzy Osbourne to six records, does hip hop stuff and cupcake along with Twista. This guy is fabulous. And I go to him and he mixes the records up. I leave them alone. Once I wrote the songs, I leave it up to the guys who are engineering and producing and uh, uh, mixing the album to, to bring it to sure, fruition. Sure. And it's another rock record. Uh, yeah. It's a good stoner rock record in a lot of ways. It's a little different than the last record I did, that solo record, which was in uh, 2014 on Cleopatra Records, when I had guys like Steven Adler and Rick Nielsen, Robin Zander, Dale Basio from Missing Persons, uh, Biff Butler, Deezer Butler's kid from Apartment 26. I had some good players on that sure, record, for sure. Yeah. This record, done not so many guys on there. Uh, I just my, I guess these are songs through my eyes at this day and age of our country. I got I you. To make you feel good, if it gets you away from all the doldrums for an hour or two a day, it's, I did my job, I'd serve my purpose. Yeah. Uh, but there's still more songs down the pipeline. It's just a brief little, small little nugget on what I have at this time. Uh, hopefully the next record will, will be just as good if not better. Yeah, I know. I'm looking forward to, to hearing the new stuff. Uh, now, now, when you go out on tour with Enough's Enough, is it safe to say that the solo stuff that you've done, does that not get played in Enough's Enough sets? Do you keep those separated? How does that work? Yeah, I do because uh, when I go on these tours and people see Enough's Enough, they want to hear the songs they know. They yep. want to hear okay. new thing, Fly Michelle, Baby Loves You, the hits. Uh, and I mix them up with the potpourri of the newer stuff that's in there too. But as far as the solo stuff goes, if there's interest, I'll go out and play those songs live for sure. In the meantime, what you get is I give you a solo record and I do a bunch of videos and we put them out there and we'll see what kind of interest it draws. I love doing the solo stuff and have listened. If one of the songs in the solo record was, it had a significant run, a movie, a soundtrack, a TV show, a commercial, something really good, of course we'd throw it in the set, but I don't want to let the fans down. They want to hear the enough enough songs that they went out and supported and followed for all yep. these years. That's what I, that's my job. Yep. I like the mindset. I, I have an interview coming up. I don't have an exact date set yet. I'm working with John on this, but uh, it'll be probably around the June time frame uh, with Joel Hoekstra, who who played, you know, God, who who has he not played with? You, you mentioned a couple earlier, Trans-Siberian Orchestras with Whitesnake. But I know that, but I but I know that he played on uh, "Welcome to the Party" on your solo record. Oh yeah, tell tell me how the that collab came about. Was it because of the Frontiers Records connection, or talk to the listeners a little bit about how Joel came about and some of the other players that you had on on, on some of the songs? I grew up with a friend of mine here in the Blue Island area named Randy Matheson. Joel, at 15 years old, played with Randy in a band. Enough Snuff when the first album came out. Critical acclaim. The first single new thing was doing great for us. MTV was playing. We were in the top 10 with Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and Poison and all those bands. And we were really busy. And didn't have a lot of time to do a lot of stuff, but Randy reached out to me, his drummer, and said, will you come out and see our band play live? And I went out to go see him. It was a big deal for them because they got a chance to, somebody in the music business that was doing well come out and support them at their show. 
and we bonded that day. He's a 15 year old guitar player. He was great then too, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I think that relationship just blossomed from there. Good. So when it came down to time to do the solo record, I called him on the phone and said, I'm doing a solo record. I'd love you to play it. He goes, I'd be honored. It was great. Very cool. Should have got him to play on the whole record. He played on three, uh, three or four tracks, but should have got him on the whole album because he's a fabulous player. Didn't he? I uh, wow. didn't tell him anything to play. Everything was done in one or two takes. Yeah. Uh, just a great musician, and he really brought the songs out. And there were good songs that I brought to him. They were great when it was all done. I don't want to sound unmodest, okay? No. They, I was happy. I was happy with his contribution. And to have Dax Nielsen on the record, too, with us from Cheap Trick, that certainly didn't hurt. That's a pretty formidable team right there. Yeah. Cheap Trick, White Snake, enough stuff all playing together. Hell yeah. And, you know, the first video came out there, and tens of thousands of people have got on there, and they liked the video. And um, it'd be nice to play some of these songs live in concert one day. Uh, we'll see what happens. So, uh, but, yeah, Joel, I look at him. As a real brother, every year we do a, a monster rock cruise mm -hmm. together. He gets up at 10 o'clock in the morning. I don't know he does it after drinking all the loud mouth soup and hanging out with the fans all night. And he does. He goes out there and plays those shows. And one of the better musicians out there, a great guitar player. I put him right up there with all my favorites like Slash and, and those killer guys out there. Oh, yeah. He just really has a nice sense of balance as a player. And he can play any kind of guitar and any instrument, any style of music. I want to, it's interesting, you brought up the Monsters of Rock cruise, and I've often thought as a, maybe a consumer of that cruise sometime, you know, I've, I've considered going on that cruise. In your opinion, how accessible are the musicians to the cruisers, right? The, just the people that have bought the tickets that are there to be on the cruise, are, do the musicians really make themselves, are they out amongst the people, are they... Only, you know, do they only surface when their shows, you know, or when they're playing? Talk, talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, most of the musicians that are on the Monster Rock cruise spend time with the fans. There's really nowhere to hide. You're on a huge sure. ship. Yeah. There's 3,500 people on that boat. And the common denominator is let's reach everybody. Music, like yeah. Great shows and bring them all yeah. into their concerts. So, yeah, you're going to be on. You're going to see them when you're going out to dinner. In the afternoon, walking around the boat, going yeah. by the pool. Maybe the boat's going to dock over in Coco Cay or over in Cosmo, Mexico, somewhere in the Bahamas. Everybody gets off there. Yeah, most of these musicians are nice guys. They, I think they're grateful to be recognized. I know Alice Cooper was on there with us. He was taking pictures with fans. Really, that's there. awesome. I'm not sure he's the biggest fan of those boats. Yeah. Because he doesn't like being trapped. Yeah. Uh, but he, we all make time there. That's what it's all yeah. about. Those fans have waited their whole life. To go out and see shows and be and oh, rub yeah. elbows with the, with the bands. Yeah. Well, that's cool so that you guys that are, do that. Yeah. So the musicians out there that aren't afraid to do that, I, it's, a, it's a great experience, I think, for yeah. anybody. Every band member I've talked to about it, it absolutely hails it. Mm -hmm. I think it's, a, it, it's wonderful that they have this every single year. And shout out to Larry Moran, who puts those shows on every day. He's not a singer, he doesn't play guitar, play bass, he doesn't have long hair. But he certainly knows how to live his life vicariously through his favorite rock and roll, heavy metal bands. And he gets them all on there every single year, and he gets the best ones. He's a wonderful promoter and a good friend, too. Bring the listeners up to speed uh, on the band today and instruments that each plays in Enough's Enough. Sure. Uh, Daniel Benjamin Hill is our drummer, plays all different instruments. As, as a matter of fact, on the new Enough Snuff album, he's, he did all the orchestral 
uh, arrangements, some keyboards and mellotrons and harpsichord and great singer, really fantastic musician and a uh, very underrated. Uh, Tori Stop Reagan, the guitar player, like I said earlier, Mother Love Bone. Uh, he had uh, Black Mollies, of course, New Black Seven, Mother Load, not Mother Love Bone. Mother Load was this new record that he just put out there, and it's a record of material. 15, 20 years ago, he did. He went and re-sang all the songs. It sounds like Alice in Chains meets Saigon Kick. Nice. He's the guitar player who plays all different instruments. In fact, he plays bass as good as I am. And then, of course, uh, Tony Fennell, guitar player, singer in the band. Tony, like I mentioned earlier, uh, had an illustrious career with playing with Edwin Starr. And then, of course, everybody knows him from uh, his past. When he, he's from Birmingham, England. And Ultravox was the big band then. They're a huge band over there. And uh, he's a great producer as well. He's a, a guitar player. So that, that's, that's the band Enough Snuff okay. right there. Uh, it's four guys who show up every single night. Uh, no tapes, no sequencers, no synthesizers, no guys backstage. Just four guys playing live. And uh, I think the fans have spoken. The band sounds great, as we are right now. We show up every single night. There's no funny-duddy. There's no... Any, any stuff that behind closed doors would be considered as promiscuous or... or uh, no uh, smoke and mirrors. Problems right. in the yeah. past. Yeah, there's yeah. no... You know, the worst scars and tattoos have been exposed. We are we are as a rock band. We show up every single city. We love the fans. We're grateful to be able to make records every single year and go on tour. Absolutely. And uh, we got some good stuff coming up down the pipeline, whether it's Enough's Enough or our other project that we have, which is called... The Beatles Rock Show. We play nothing but Beatles songs in that set. Uh, not a lot of bands can say that. We just just some good opportunities on the pipeline. I'm looking forward to seeing what's next for Enough's Enough. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I know that we have some good records, and we're all putting solo stuff out there. By the way, I want to mention uh, Tori's other project too, uh, Snickerdoodle, uh, and that's uh, like a, almost like a country pop record. That is fabulous. So. Uh, along with uh, uh, Tony doing his stuff with uh, One in Rome, we all got a little small things that we do on the side that are they have potential to be big. Sure. But at the end of the day, we all focus our attention on our enough's baby, enough, which yeah. is enough's enough. Yeah. Well, you you have to you you can't put all your eggs in one basket. So you're smart business people. It sounds like at the end of the day. Well, we love playing music. We didn't just get in this to make money in the record business. Sure. We did it because we enjoy our company and playing with each other. Absolutely. In a band. That's it. We like creating together. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a real formidable team. Yep. Uh, but it'd be certainly nice to get compensation for <laughs> all the time and devotion that we put into our craft. Wouldn't that be nice? And I think all the guys uh, doing stuff on the side just makes us love enough stuff even that much more. Absolutely. Where can the listeners find you and the boys on social media these days, Chip? Real simple, enoughsenough.com, E-N-U-F-F, Z-N-U-F-F, enoughsenough.com. Yes, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm also Chip's Enough on Facebook and Instagram as well. And then you can check me out on my program. I'm on radio six days a week. It's called The Monsters of Rock. It's on the Dash Radio Network. It's the other satellite station besides Sirius XM. It's simple again. Just download dashradio.com. Download the app. It's free. Go to channel 502, Monsters of Rock. Dash Radio, that's a new, formidable way to listen to radio. You got Snoop Dogg on there. You got Be Real from Cypress Hill, Kylie Jenner. 
Rudy Sarzo's on my program. It's a it's a massive thirty million subscribers, just like Sirius XM. Very cool. Except probably more songs. We have about seventy five thousand songs to pick from, and it's a big celebration of life. A through C, the whole alphabet of hard rock and heavy metal. Check us out. It's really good. I think you really enjoy it. Commercial free, by the way. I, I love that chip, and you know this is this is one of the reasons why I started the show because uh, it, it's really a learning thing for me. I, I've been a music junkie and a musician all my life, and I love I love learning more about guys like you, the the music that I grew up with, the music that I love, and like I I, I knew nothing about Dash Radio before this, so I, I'm educated. I feel like I've learned something today. So thanks for sharing that with not only myself but my listeners. I did have I did have one last question for you, and um, in your own words, can you define success for me? What does success mean to Chips Enough? Success to me is real simple: to be able to stay focused and put music out every single year, and people out there listen to you. That's it. You know, it's not about the actual money; it's about the people you reach. At the end of the day, sometimes it's more important making people happy than it is padding your coffers. I agree. I've asked that question to a lot of the guests on this show and money has never come up one time. And I love that answer more than anything. You're, you're doing it for the love of why you started doing it to begin with, you know, the love of the music. And if you happen to be able, like you said, to, to, to buy a ham sandwich or a cheeseburger at the end of the day, that the, the, it's just gravy at that, at that point in time, right? Uh, Chip, thanks again so much for spending time with me today. It's, uh, it's been a super cool treat. I, I know that we had a little debacle earlier, but we, we persevered. We're here. We got to chat. Uh, thank you for, you know, figuring it out, the, the time and everything. And uh, so, again, thank you uh, for your stories and sharing your thoughts and uh, what not with the listeners. I ask the listeners to uh, like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Also, don't forget to follow Chip on all of the social media platforms as well as www.enoughzenuff, that's E-N-U-F-F-Z-N-U-F-F.com. I want to thank you guys again for tuning in and remind you that you can find the show on Facebook at Backstage Pass Radio Podcast, on Instagram at Backstage Pass Radio, Twitter, Backstage Pass PC, and on the website at www.backstagepassradio.com. You guys stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for tuning in to Backstage Pass Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Make sure to follow Randy on Facebook and Instagram at Randy Halsey Music and on Twitter at R Halsey Music. Also make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on alerts for upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to share the link with a friend and tell them Backstage Pass Radio is the best show on the web for everything music. We'll see you next time right here on Backstage Pass Radio.